This week on BMJ.com, two articles are looking at high-risk devices for rare diseases and how the FDA in the US has regulated them. Joining us from the US are Rita Redberg, cardiologist and professor of medicine at the University of California, and Aaron Kesselheim, assistant professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard. Rita, could you start by explaining for people who don't know what the humanitarian device exemption pathway is? Sure. The humanitarian device exemption pathway is a path that's intended to be used to allow uh, devices that treat rare diseases, which are defined as having less than uh, 4,000 patients, to reach market um, without the same evidence burden and cost of devices that treat larger markets of patients. So it encourages device development for more rare diseases. So in theory, this is a good idea? In theory, it's a good idea. The wingspan stent is one of the devices approved through the humanitarian device exemption pathway. How did the manufacturers do that? So the criteria for humanitarian use device, which we mentioned in the article, is that besides that it's supposed to treat a disease of fewer than 4,000 individuals a year, um, they're supposed to be used, you know, for areas where there isn't any other device available, and they are um, supposed to have probable benefit outweigh its risks and mm-hmm. not pose an unreasonable risk of illness or injury. And so this uh, wingspan intracranial stent system was approved in 2005 on the basis of a very small study, 45 patients, and it did not have a control group. And so, you know, by any evidence standard that is pretty weak evidence, um, the FDA said at the time that there was, quote, no alternative standard therapy readily available for this disease state, unquote. Although um, when the NIH sponsored a trial, they did have a control group and the readily available standard therapy was medical management. So in what people was the device being used? What was it? What condition is it treating? It was treated um, for people that had had strokes, but obviously that's not a rare disease. But in particular, it was people that had intracranial atherosclerosis and had um, not responded to standard medical therapy. And then how did it come about that the SAMPRAS trial was done? What was the impetus for that? Well, that's a good question. You know, I talked to a few of the investigators, and as best we could tell, there was just... um, and I don't know if there was more to it, but just continued interest in what was actually happening with intracranial stenting. You know, I think in, in general, there has been a lot of interest in stents in various places. You know, obviously we put a lot of stents in the coronary arteries, and there was a lot of interest in whether that could success could be reproduced in other parts of the circulation, like peripheral circulation, in this case the brain. And that was the best I could understand is that mm. they um, really wanted to get more definitive evidence before stenting became standard of care in the U.S. And so the NIH um, funded the SAMPRAS trial, which um, then um, began in 2008. But as I said, what was particularly notable is this was a randomized controlled trial and aggressive medical management was used in the control group. And what did the trial find? Well, the trial was actually um, prematurely stopped after 451 patients, which was only a 
a little over half of their target sample size because the primary outcome, which was uh, stroke and death, was significantly greater in the group that were getting stents compared to medical therapy. Mm. So it was not just that the the um, stent was causing side effects, it was actually not helping at all. So the med- medical group were doing better um, and, and, the, and the stented group were, um, you were seeing more deaths in that group. Right. I mean, this was obviously a treatment that was supposed to prevent stroke and instead they, we were seeing significantly more stroke and death. And yeah. we um, estimated for every 11 patients that were treated with wingspan, one additional patient would have a stroke or die. And so what happened after that? Not that much happened, it seems, until December 2011 when the um, consumer advocacy group Public Citizen, led by Sidney Wolf, petitioned the FDA to withdraw approval of Wingspan. So the FDA then uh, convened a meeting a few months later of its advisory uh, neurologic devices panel to review the Sampras results, the randomized trial. They did not take a formal vote, but the informal vote show that the panel members were unanimous in saying that the current data on the wingspan do not support its safety and efficacy as a treatment for ischemic stroke in adults. So, I mean, I would say at this point, clearly the wingspan device does not meet the criteria for the humanitarian exemption because those criteria state that the probable benefit must outweigh its risk Mm -hmm. um, as a device should not pose an unreasonable risk of illness or injury. This trial had shown that uh, there was no benefit and that it was posing an unreasonable risk of illness or injury. However, the FDA decided not to withdraw the device, but instead uh, changed the criteria and stated that while wingspan is not beneficial for the broad population of stroke patients, there is evidence from the original HTE study, referring to that study without a control of 44 patients, that there are probable benefits of using it in a specific population. And then they outlined new indications that they said were based on that original HDE trial. Wingspan is one device, but Erin, you've been looking at the whole humanitarian device pathway since its inception in the 1990s. Have you done that? Well, we were able to gather uh, information about the approvals of devices for rare diseases from the FDA's website. And we uh, extracted data about the uh, pivotal trials um, from those documents. So you looked at every single device that had been approved since this process started. And just for listeners, tell us what a pivotal trial is, because some people might not be familiar with that term. Sure. Um, When a device is tested in its investigational phase, it goes through a number of different, uh, it can potentially go through a number of different um, trials. It can go through um, animal trials or, or trials in a, um, in a laboratory setting, uh, and then it can also go through different trials in humans. Um, the pivotal trial is generally the most advanced uh, clinical trial that the FDA uh, receives. It's sort of the usually the largest and, and most rigorous trial um, that a, a device um, or a drug undergoes um, in the investigational pre-market phase. So you looked at all of the pivotal trials that were there and some of the supporting trials um, also and looked at the quality of those studies. Um, Tell us what you found. We looked for uh, normal characteristics of high-quality trials 
um, like randomization, uh, blinding, uh, th those kinds of characteristics. We, we looked, also looked at the number of patients enrolled in the trials. Um, and what we found is that the, you know, the FDA is approving these devices for rare diseases generally on the basis of, of relatively small trials, as one might expect, because these are rare diseases. But um, we found that the trials are actually very small and, and enrolled a median of, 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 uh, of only 38 patients. Um, and, and that the, the large majority of these trials weren't randomized and weren't blinded. We're basically showing that the FDA does have substantial authority um, to apply its standards flexibly and, and is in fact doing that in the cases of these devices for rare diseases. Yes, and you went on and you compared this group of um, humanitarian devices for rare diseases to a group of other standard devices approved through the more stringent FDA pathway and, and compared the characteristics of those studies. And what did you find there? Well, there have been a few studies that have been published in the past looking at the characteristics of, of pivotal trials leading to the FDA approval of um, high-risk devices in cardiovascular disease and more common, uh, more common diseases. And actually, one of the key results of those trials is that many of those trials did not involve randomization and did not involve blinding, re involved relatively small numbers of patients. Um, and that, those, those are... Um, Studies were were broadly discussed um, in the field and and among uh, among researchers. And when we compared our results to those results, we found that the the pivotal trials leading to humanitarian device approvals were even smaller and involved uh, those kinds of qualities and characteristics in even less than in those devices. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And so, what do you think this means? What it, it suggests to me is that is that manufacturers do have a very vibrant pathway that they can use uh, to get these kind of devices on the market, and that that patients should feel reassured that the FDA is doing what it can to to um, provide a pathway uh, to market for for these kinds of devices. On the other hand, what it also suggests to us is that many of these devices need, uh, in fact, mandate. Uh, post-market uh, surveillance of them and continued study of them after their approval because of the uh, relatively limited data on which they are approved. So um, as the FDA considers um, new policymaking around post-market surveillance of devices, um, emphasizing uh, uh, definite uh, demanding uh, post-market studies of these humanitarian devices should be very high on their list. And in fact, we would suggest that the FDA formally um, reconsider the approval of the devices after a fixed period of time, say three to five years, um, when when the, the FDA may have more data in front of it and may be able to make um, an, another evaluation about whether or not the device should remain on the market. Rita, back to you. What do you think needs to be done now from a regulatory point of view? You know, after looking at this, say that the criteria for the humanitarian device exemption seem reasonable as written, but they need to be actually followed. Mm -hmm. And so if there truly is a rare disease and there truly is no other treatment, you certainly want to encourage or lower the bar for development of a device that would treat that disease. However, to me, this example was notable because it's a little bit of stretching, I think, to say that 
uh, stroke was a rare disease, which they did from you know, saying this was a particular cause of, from intracranial atherosclerosis. But then also you still have to have the benefit outweighs the risk. And that's certainly relaxing that to a very small study with a very short term. The original study, I think, had a 30-day endpoint. Having a small trial with a 30-day endpoint and no control group just, I don't think, can really give you an assurance of um, benefit for the device. And then more disturbing is when the NIH then funded a randomized controlled trial, which as opposed to the small industry-sponsored trial did have a controlled group, and there's clear evidence of harm. Uh, the company and the FDA still failed to act, and the, the device remains on the market, and the post-marketing study that was supposed to collect additional data, which would be another way to see, you know, it, is this device actually working then in this narrowed indication group that the FDA has now redefined after the safety meeting, but there's no data available from the post-marketing study either. There's not even any data to suggest it's begun. Hmm. So I think tighter regulation of all of those, the pre-marketing evaluation of data as well as post-marketing collection of data would help greatly to enhance safety and effectiveness of high-risk um, medical devices. That was Rita Redberg and Aaron Kesselheim talking about medical devices. Their articles are currently free for the next week on bmj.com.